Okay, well, we're going to continue our series in Hebrews 11. And we have come to a character by the name of Abraham. And so, Steve, if you would read us just uh, the portion designated, we would appreciate it. Listen carefully to the scripture. This is uh, Genesis 12, 1 and 2. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And in Hebrews 11, starting verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive, as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. All right. So we're introduced to the fellow by the name of Abraham. I want to begin this morning by asking you the question, anybody here besides me have a problem with calories? Anybody have them? Problem with you? Now, there are many problems with calories, and one of them is they're always in the food you love and never in the food you hate. I mean, that's just where calories are. But the real problem is you can neither see nor taste calories. But the result is unbelievable, right? Now, that's a little bit like faith. Uh, faith is not easily understood. You don't see it. You don't taste it. But the results are unbelievable. We don't know a whole lot about faith. I know more about faith than I know about calories, but none of us knows a great deal about faith. Most of us are a little bit like this little kid named Johnny who went to school for the first day in his life, first grade. And the teacher said, Johnny, uh, two and two make what? And he said, teacher, what's a two? <laughs> Well, I'm a little like Johnny. What is faith? Now, I know that uh, faith is real, and, uh, but we have to ask the question, what is true biblical faith? There are some weird things going on under the name of faith. For example... Have you ever heard anybody who responded to a young widow when she just lost her husband? Well, you just didn't have enough faith. Now, other than wanting to punch them in the mouth, you know, I, I have a problem with what they've said simply because there's a story in the New Testament where some guys tore up a roof in order to let down a friend, and it was their faith that responded in what happened to the fellow who was taken care of. So sometimes it's not just the person, it may be the faith of others that needs to be involved. Does that make sense? But then a lot of the crazy things are done in the name of faith. I'm not saying who, I'm not, I'm not even attempting to shame, I'm attempting to illustrate. 
we know, Mary and I know of a family who was so convicted that God had given them the word that he was going to raise their loved one who had just died, that they kept his body in the living room for until the law wouldn't allow otherwise, waiting in faith, believing that God was going to raise him up at any moment. Now, I understand someone's desire for that and even wish for that, but true biblical faith maybe was not involved because faith has a dramatic response. True biblical faith always produces an end result. Always produces an end result. So we're going to look at this fellow by the name of Abraham. He's mentioned in Hebrews 11 in the hall of the heroes of faith, but he's talked more about than anybody else in this chapter. In fact, we dealt with Enoch and we dealt with Noah and we dealt with Cain and we dealt with Abel and they were just a verse or two. But here, Abraham takes a lot of verses in Hebrews 11 and a whole lot of the Old Testament. He may be the best biblical illustration of what faith is in a human being simply because of the length of his testimony, of the testimony of his life. And so we're going to have to take three different studies uh, in order to cover this one character by the name of Abraham. We're going to deal, first of all, this morning with Abraham the person. We're just going to look at him a little bit in a personal manner. Uh, the next time I teach in Steve's absence, we'll be looking at Abraham as a partner. And we're going to look at his three marriages now, he's got a problem just having three of them, but there were some real, real problems. And uh, they're too intricate for us to talk about in one Bible study. So I'm going to make his life as a partner in marriage a separate Bible study entirely because it's going to be tremendously significant when we see how each of the first two of his wives illustrate uh, the, uh, the covenant of grace and the covenant of works. And uh, that's a real thing we're going to have to point out, and it'll take some while to do that. And then the third time we look, my study here, we'll be looking at Abraham as uh, a parent, because we're going to look at his children. He was, of course, the source of the nation of Israel. We're going to find out about his sons and some of his daughters and we'll look at him. So Abraham is going to be a picture for us the next three Bible studies on uh, what is biblical faith, seeing it in the person of Abraham, in the partnership of marriage of Abraham, and in the parental uh, responsibility of Abraham. We'll look at all three of those. But let me just begin by talking about him as a person. Now he's quite a character. By the way, I don't know whether you realize it or not, but Adam, and I mean the first man, Adam. Adam was still alive when Methuselah was born. Did you know that? Now, Methuselah lived, as far as the scripture's recording is concerned, the longest of anyone, okay? But uh, Methuselah was still alive when Noah was born. 
And then Noah was still alive when Abram or Abraham was born. Now, somebody said one time, this means that Abraham might have sat on Noah's lap and, for, and heard a firsthand report of the, uh, the flood and all, maybe even all the way back uh, in the ancestry. Well, that would be a wonderful thing to think of, but it's probably not true <laughs> at all. And the reason is because Abraham was born a pagan. Now, he was of the line of Seth, but there were several from Seth's lineage in the family of Abraham. Uh, and his father, Terah, and his family, Abraham, when he was born, lived in the Ur of the Chaldees. And that's, of course, a, a rather pagan place. In fact, Terah, the father of Abraham, uh, the word Terah means moon. And it probably is indicative of the fact that Terah originally, uh, the father of Abraham, was originally a worshiper of the moon, which is what took place in the Ur of the Chaldees. And so Abram was born in a rather heathenistic uh, society. He had an older brother, Nahor, and he had a younger brother, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, he had an older brother, Haran, and a younger brother, Nahor. Haran died while they were still in the Ur, or, uh, by the way, there's a city by the name of Haran, and sometimes the people when they study the Bible get those two things mixed up. But the older brother died, and his son became the responsibility of Abraham, and his, uh, Abraham's nephew's name was Lot. So Lot was the son of Haran. Haran died early, although he was the oldest son of Terah. Abraham was the middle boy, and then Nahor was the youngest. And so Abraham was born in the Ur of the Chaldees in uh, Mesopotamia, southern Mesopotamia, what we call Iraq today. But an interesting thing happened to this guy, Abraham. And it was a personal thing. Some way or other, and we don't know how, but the Lord spoke to him. One day the Lord captured his attention. Now, it could have been like Moses. You remember that fiery bush that God got Moses' attention and the Lord spoke to Moses from in the midst of the fiery bush. Uh, it could be that God did something like that. It could be that it was from a bright light. You remember when Saul was persecuting the church and he was on his way to Damascus, the Lord appeared to him in a bright light and everybody was blinded. So maybe Abraham was blinded. Or maybe it was like Elijah. There was a strong wind and there was a tremendous thunder and earthquake but God wasn't in any of those. In fact, with Elijah, the scripture says he spoke in a still, small voice. Now, did God speak to Abraham in some fiery bush or uh, in uh, some bright light or with a still, small voice? It's pure conjecture. Nobody knows. But whatever he said, however he said it, he got his attention. And... Uh, Abraham became a God worshiper, a God follower. 
for special reason, as was read in the scripture. There was a promise given to him that his seed would be as the, later on described as the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky. But there was a promised seed coming and a promised land coming. And Abraham said to the Lord, I want you to get out from where you are right now and follow me. So I want to look this morning at three characteristics about Abraham that I personally believe are all three the same characteristics for all of us who have come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, I'm talking to believers this morning. In other words, people who have already come to believe in Christ, trust Him as Lord and Savior. There may be someone who's still on the journey uh, or going to that place or coming to that conviction, and I'm glad you're here. But the fact is, I want to talk to those who've responded to the call of Christ because the three things said about Abraham are also three things said about us. So Abraham wasn't special in that way. Now, he was special in many ways with the land and all of the promised seed and all that, but he wasn't special in, in the things I'm going to talk about today. The first thing is that Abraham was chosen. In other words, God selected now, the New Testament word for it is the word elected. God elected Abraham out of all of those in the earth of the Chaldees. Now, why in the world did God elect Abraham out of all of those people? And my answer is, as it says in your, uh, your class notes, I simply have no idea. And by the way, according to the New Testament, some way or other, those who come to Christ are seen as elected ones. Well, why in the world would he elect us, those of us sitting in this room? From the looks of all of us, I have no idea. I just don't know. Because election is within the providence of God's purposes only. Election is something that we're not permitted to get in on, the whys and the wherefores of it. Now, the fact of it is stated in Scripture, so we're going to rest there. And Abraham was chosen, well, so were you, so was I. And the word is elected. Now, last Sunday, I went to the First Baptist Church, Wichita Falls, and spoke at their invitation. And I spoke on 1 John 2.2. 2, for Christ is our propitiation and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And I dealt with the extent of the atonement. And that's the word election. And they asked me to do this, to talk with them about it. So I proceeded to give them the three groups that everybody falls into when they think about this subject that is totally impossible for all of us to completely understand this side of eternity. The first group uh, is made up of those people. They're generally called Arminians, but uh, actually there are some uh, people in the Reformed faith or who are 
quote, Calvinistic, who hold to this, they just don't hold to limited atonement, is what the Calvinistic people call it. But it's the group that believes what God did was look down through the ages of time and saw all who would one day of their free volitional will choose to follow Christ, and they made, and he made them his elect. Now, there are people who hold to that. By the way, most people in this room probably hold it. Most Southern Baptists, the group that I was reared under, generally hold to that. That's the group that most people are in. There is a second group, however, as I shared last week in Wichita Falls, that's made up of what we call universalist. And they believe when 1 John 2, 2 says Christ is our propitiation for the sins of the whole world, they mean he actually redeemed every person, and that eventually, some way, somehow, every person, every human being will eventually, by the grace of God, be brought into a relationship with uh, God himself. Now, there are not many of those folks alive. Mary and I know a, co a couple. One of them, if I were to call his name, you would recognize it because he's quite a well-known author. Another one is a fellow that you don't know, but I know him. He's 90 years old. He's a retired theology professor from a seminary, and he holds to this view. Now, I will never argue with him because he's forgotten more Hebrew than I've ever learned. And so uh, when I've been with him, I just didn't discuss it with him, as you can understand, because, uh, I, you know, I'd be lost in trying to prove or disprove something. But he actually believes that. And so the group one is those who believe God looked down, saw who would believe, and he made them his elect. And some believe that it means every person will ultimately, however God does it. Some of them call it uh, a hopeful universalism. Uh, but their mantra is love wins, and the love of God will eventually win over every human being. Then there's a third group that made up basically of Calvinists, and they're the ones who believe that God, out of all the human race that would ever be created before time ever started, chose whom he would redeem, made them the elect, and it's those for whom Christ actually died. And that's the three groups. For the first group, they believe all looked down and saw, and uh, God made those or decided because of their faith, he would make them the elect. Uh, those who believe, everybody will be, those who believe uh, that God before time uh, decided that he would choose a certain number and uh, and they're Calvinists. Now you say, Brother Paul, which group do you belong to? I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. Now, one of these days when we get to a passage of Scripture where it's teaching something about this, then I'll delve into it and give you my uh, candid opinion, which is, will only be an opinion, uh, because no one can actually explain this thing of election, the whys and the wherefore. And Abraham is a perfect illustration of this. Why Abraham? Nobody knows. Oh, there are things that can be said about him, but the fact is, nobody knows. And so uh, that's who he is as a person. That's Abraham. He was chosen by God. Now, you know what? In fact, I, I wasn't going to, but I think I will, just because 
it's important for us to know it. There's a verse of scripture in the book of Acts that says this. Uh, for of him and through him, now it's talking about Christ, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So whatever else we believe about this idea of election, we believe that everything starts of him, through him, and for him. And that's election. But I like the way Pastor Marty does it. Now you can believe whatever you find in the scripture, just don't argue about it or get mad at people who have a differing opinion. If that's going to be your kind of characteristic of your personality, you might want to check another church someplace. I love that. Because our fellowship, and this is what I concluded with the people at Wichita Falls, first of all, uh, whoever's going to be with God in eternity, it will not be a surprise to God because one way or another, whichever three groups, he already knows, right? Second of all, uh, we don't fellowship around our understanding of election. We, under, we, we fellowship around the one of whom election's all about, the person of Christ, who he is and what he did, and that's the basis of our fellowship. And so, as I shared with them, that is all I can say with any kind of uh, sanity about this matter of, cho of being chosen. But mark it down. Abraham was a chosen individual. Mark it down. Now, ladies and gentlemen, get this. No matter what your background, no matter what messes you've made, no matter how difficult your life has been, no matter what uh, screw-ups you've had in your life, God, for whatever reason, known only to himself, in some manner, some fashion, has chosen you. You are special to him. Somebody said, if God has a refrigerator in heaven today, your picture's on the front door of it. I like that. Paul, I heard it said best. It, God does not call the qualified. Yeah. He qualifies the and uh, that's exactly true. And that's our mantra. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies those who are called. And that's, that's precisely where we are. Now, the second thing I want to mention, not only was Abraham a chosen man, but Abraham was a called man. The scripture says, when he was called, he went out. Now, this is in uh, verse 8 of Hebrews 11. Let me just permit, or permit me to say something about this, uh, the Greek in this verse. And I don't know any Greek. I only know a little Greek, and he runs a cleaner not far from our house. And we talk once in a while when I pick up my clothing. That's a joke. You can laugh if you want to. Get on. Uh, but the Greek language is important here. Because, and let me just give it to you uh, as it is, it is a participle in the Greek language, which means that he, as he was called, or while he was being called, the present participle in the Greek language says, he was in that moment obeying. 
In other words, there was no delay in his obeying. When God called him, he said, let's go. Now, I wish it could mean an instant thing in my memory, but it doesn't, wasn't an instant thing in my memory to my memory. I remember I was just a kid. My sister, who later married the guy who was preaching when I was converted when I was uh, uh, 13 years of age, uh, they'd just gotten married. They'd been, you know, and he was preaching a revival, Frank Coy, my brother-in-law, and I was standing there with Betty, my sister, and I was just a 13-year-old boy, and for the first time in my life that I could ever remember, I got under, for some unknown reason, some feeling where I couldn't hold back the tears. I later knew it was conviction. And my sister, Betty Jo, uh, leaned down and said, now, I'm Paul to all of you. They used to call me Butch. She's permitted to, but you're not, okay? <laughs> she looked down and said, Butch, what's wrong? And I said, sis, I bumped my head. I lied about it in church. I lied about why I was crying. I was under conviction and I lied so no one would think I was a sissy. Can you believe that? I left, but I came back the next night. And the same thing happened again, only this time I did what Abraham did. While God called, I obeyed. I walked out. I, my brother-in-law led me to Christ, and uh, we prayed together, and I'll never forget. He said, uh, uh, now, Paul, when you leave this building, first thing you're going to think is, well, what a stupid thing to do. And as I told the guys uh, the other day, when I left that day, I stepped off on an eight-cylinder block, which was our porch of that little church almost, and I stepped down on the ground, and the thought came, what a stupid thing to do. But then I remember what Frank told me. Just remember, Jesus said, if you call on me, I will. If you call on me, I'll answer. And he said, are you calling? I said, I am. In faith, I am. I believe him. And I haven't really doubted much since that day. So I was glad for that kind of counsel. But it didn't happen the night that I came under conviction. And it's always been a little bit of a surprise to me. For Abraham, he obeyed immediately. I heard my brother-in-law, Frank, say one time, every Christian needs to wake up every day with a calendar that's totally free and sign the bottom of the calendar and say, now, Lord, fill it in for today. I'm not so sure that that's not what we did when we came to Christ. In spiritual reality, what we were doing was uh, signing the bottom of the life of, of the page of our life and saying, okay, God, fill it in. Well, that's sure what God did with Abraham. He started filling it in immediately. He told him part of it, I'm going to give you a great land. I'm going to give you many children. I want you to follow me. And so God begins the journey. Now, in some of our pages since our conversion, we've stubbed our toe, we've blooded our nose, we've messed up and thank the Lord for 1 John 1, 9 when we agree with God that that was the wrong thing to do. The blood of Christ has already cleansed us and we get back in our fellowship with the Lord. And if it weren't for that verse, I wouldn't know what I, to do because I have been out of fellowship uh, a lot of times, but being in fellowship is 
the, is the story I want to be uh, living in. And so Abraham answered immediately. And he left the Ur of the Chaldees. So what we could translate this verse as saying, he went out, and by the way, the verse says, uh, not knowing where he was going. Now, in the Hebrew, in that verse, uh, that word is actually, or those phrases actually mean, uh, uh, he went not even putting his thoughts on what would come. That's what the Hebrew literally said. He followed the Lord, not putting his thoughts on what would happen. Ladies and gentlemen, I got to tell you, real biblical faith always does that. Will always do that. It always does. Real biblical faith is never given the details. You're just going to have to trust him. You're going to just have to believe it. Now, it'd be a whole lot later, or better, maybe, or easier for some of us if we'd say, now, Lord, I'll believe you, but tell me what you're going to do, and then I'll decide whether I want to or not. But that's not biblical faith. <laughs> biblical faith is signing the bottom of that sheet. Lord, fill it in. And I got to tell you, he doesn't give most of us the details of it, as many details as he gave to Abraham. He just doesn't. It is, after all, a life of faith, trusting. Now, that brings us to the third thing, and we'll need to say it rather quickly, and that is Abraham was a chosen person. He was a called person, but Abraham also complied. He was a compliant person. In other words, he chose to go along. He moved in the direction. He obeyed by Faith. The New Testament says it was his belief that gave him righteousness. Righteousness came because of his belief. And by the way, our righteousness comes at the point of our belief. When you trusted Christ, he declared you to be righteous. And that word simply means everything you ought to be. In other words, he's declared, I now look at you and say, at a boy, at a girl. Well, I know, Lord, but you don't know how I act. No, you don't understand. I accept you and see you on the basis of how my son acted. And he did it perfectly. And he died for you. And when you trusted him, believed in him, I now declare you to be as you ought to be. Man, that's unbelievable. But that's what happens when we come by faith. But I want you to remember this. The thing about biblical faith, but that must never be forgotten, is the important thing about faith is never how much you have. It's not the volume of your faith. Have you ever heard somebody say, oh, if I could just have enough faith, then I would trust Christ. Having enough faith is never the issue. The volume of our faith is never the issue. You can come to know the Lord in a personal relationship with a tiny grain of faith. It doesn't take, take a whole lot of faith. Just, a, just enough faith as a 13-year-old boy to respond and say, Lord, I don't understand this, but I'm trusting you. That's a little bit of faith, and that's all it takes. 
Because the important thing about faith is never its volume. It is always its object. The object of true biblical faith is always the significant thing. Now, somebody says, Brother Paul, I just could not live this life of faith. Well, uh, you know, if we really think about it, even before we come to know Christ, we're living with a kind of a brand of faith, uh, you know, because every time you get on a plane, you are faithing that that pilot knows what he's doing and will do it right. Right? So the object of your faith when you board a plane is that pilot. Now, the problem is you're the object of your faith when you board a plane. Maybe be an alcoholic, be drunk as a hoot owl, or maybe, you know, be old and ready to have a mental collapse or whatever, but you're putting your life in his hands. Why? Because, well, it's just the way travel is. It's a thing of faith. You came in this door. Whoever was here first. Joe, were you here first? Somebody was here first. They flipped on a light. The light came on. Why? Because she flipped the switch. Why did she flip the switch? Because she had faith that some electrical company someplace was feeding the line. And when I flipped this little thing called a switch, something happened. Well, the problem is you can put your faith in an electric company someplace and they don't come through. You can flip a switch and the light not come on. You know. And so we all live with this measure of faith. If you don't live by faith, don't write a check. Because you're trusting that that bank will honor it. Well, I know I've got a lot of money in the bank or I've got some money in the bank. But I've got enough to cover it. That's true. And they'll take care of it. But banks have been known to fail. Right? The important thing about faith, ladies and gentlemen, is always its object. Now, I will agree that there is a difference between biblical belief and all this little belief on the light switch and the pilot and the check that I've just talked about because the object of our faith is who? God himself as we know him in the person of Christ Jesus who accomplished on our behalf all that is needed for our redemption. Therefore the important thing about faith is its Object. Now, I'm going to illustrate it with a way that I have a ton of times, and I hope it'll help you. Let's just suppose, Joe, we'll just say you and I walk down to this lake here in, you know, Oklahoma, and it's mid-January, coldest spell ever, and it's frozen solid. And you say to me, uh, Brother Paul, I believe that ice will hold you up. And let's say... You really think so, Joe? Yeah, I believe that ice will hold you up. I agree with you. I think that ice will hold me. And I run out with all the zeal in the world. I jump out on it and go straight through because the ice is only an eighth of an inch thick. Now, nothing wrong with how much faith I had. I had all the faith in the world. I leapt out on that ice. Problem is I put my faith in the wrong object. Now, let's say... Joe and I walk down to that lake and 
He says, Brother Paul, that lake will hold you up. And I said, Joe, I don't think so. <laughs> oh, I don't trust that. I mean, I don't know about that. No, Brother Paul, it'll hold you up. I don't know, Joe. But I decide, put my toe on it, and I press it. Well, you know, and I step out on it, and I step out on it, and I take another step out on it, scared to death the whole time. Because unknown to me, the ice is seven inches thick. Now, would you rather have a little ice with a lot of faith placed in it or a lot of ice with a little faith placed in it? Do you understand the important thing about biblical faith is its object? And no matter how much, how little your faith might be, when you place it in him, you have put it in the right object. You can stand. Now, it is true that if I were to holler back to Joe and say, Joe, uh, there's a drill, one of those old-fashioned hand drills over there. Throw it to me. And he slides it out to me. And I take that drill, and I begin to drill through that ice. Look at that. And I drill some more, and I'm still not through it because it's seven inches thick. I'm going through what happens to my faith. Man, alive, I begin to have more faith and more why? Because the more you know about the object of your faith, the greater your faith grows. Do you know why most of us have such small faith? We know so little about the one who is the object of our faith. This is the reason uh, the scripture is so important for us. This is the reason uh, we are to think of the scripture and its story of who Jesus is and how he accomplished, what he accomplished, and what he says about our daily living. Search the scripture is our mantra. Why? Because the scripture tells us about who he is. Don't look for things in the scripture to add to your theology. Always study the scripture with what is it saying about Jesus? What does it want me to understand about who God is and what he's accomplished? And so I read the verse that says, whom the Lord has chosen, he has justified. What does that mean? Well, he chose it. Why? I've already admitted I don't understand that. What is this justified? Well, it's a Greek word which means to see you just as if you've never sinned. The other side of that coin is to see you just as if you've always done right. My goodness, ladies and gentlemen, I don't see myself that way. I know that. You're not that way, and neither am I. But the Heavenly Father says, I see you that way. Why? Because you have trusted my son, the Lord Jesus, and I have accredited all of his righteousness to you and your sin to him. So ladies and gentlemen, we live with our eye on the one who is the object of our faith, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? If it makes sense, I'm going to stop. In fact, I'm going to stop anyway because it's time. But just remember this, Abraham as a person was chosen. He was called. He was compliant. He did what was asked of him. Now the question is, do we realize that's to be true of us too? Called, chosen, 
and obey in faith. Go in faith, believing, standing on who God is. And when you mess up, don't forget what 1 John 1, 9, he's already promised that. Be ready for it. I wish I could hug all of you next, but I'll just uh, say the benediction. Get out of here, all of you, and God bless you. Thank you for coming.